All right, well, while the mass exodus is happening there in the back, um, I want you to recall back if you've ever had a job before, unless you're a child in the room still. Um, what was your first job? Remember what that was like. My first job was a dog groomer. It wasn't fun. Uh, actually, it was to be more accurate, I wasn't really a dog groomer. I was more of a dog washer. So I was the guy in the back where all the dogs were put in cages and they would just, you know, scream for eight hours. And then in the middle of that, there I would have these two wash tubs going and these two dogs at a time, I would be washing them, I would be clipping their nails, I would be getting bit at. And then afterwards, uh, after they got clipped and did all the stuff by the, the folks that actually ran the place and knew what they were doing, I would be the one to put that final little, you know, the bandana <laughs> around their neck and then shoo them back out the door as they continued to bite at me. Uh, if you total it up, you are going to spend, give or take, around one-third of your lifetime working. Some of those hours may be more enjoyable than others, depending on what your job is or has been or will be, but that's a long time. That's a long time for us to consider if, if a third of my entire life is going to be spent at or somewhere near this particular place. Maybe I'm working from home, maybe I'm doing it a combination, especially these days post-COVID, but what am I actually doing this for? Is it literally just, I go, I punch the clock, I put my head down, I do my work, I turn around and I get out of there as fast as I can? Or is there something bigger at play? Is there something more important than just the getting through from one side of the day to the other of your workday? We've been in this series now for a number of weeks. We're actually around in the corner. We've got two weeks left, and then uh, we're going to jump into the book of Acts for the fall, which I'm real excited about. And I think segues pretty well out of uh, what we've been doing this summer. But according to the Bible, the gospel changes the way you think about your work. The way you spend your time, God is not only concerned with how you spend your time the one and a half or an hour and ten minutes that you're here if we're hitting our numbers right. But God is concerned equally about every moment, every square inch of your life. Every hour of every day can be lived for the sake of his glory and with his particularity of purpose informing it. Because almost as soon, if you track all the way back to the beginning of scripture, almost as soon as God makes man, God makes work. That may be a surprise. Work is not from the devil. <laughs> Work is not a consequence of this evil world we live in. Work is a good thing. God is calling us to join with him in co-creating in this world that he has given us all the beautiful raw materials for. And even more so, that means everybody, whether they know they're working for the Lord or they're not, everybody, it is good to work. It is good to work with your hands. There's something healthy about that. But even more particularly for the believer, for the follower of Jesus this morning, there is an even more unique purpose that Jesus gives that this portion of your life, as well as every other portion, uh, can be bathed in this kind of a purpose. So 
To describe that purpose, we are going to use Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew 5. Uh, and I believe we've got a reader coming up. Donna Garrett, if you could come up and read for us, that would be wonderful. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if saltiness has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Very good. Thank you, Donna. So going back all the way to the very first week, we read out of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, these words, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, not a, a slightly changed individual, not just someone who now they know better and can start to live a better life than they used to, but anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You have new ingredients inside of you that makes you you. And that's what Jesus is pointing out today. He's saying two of the primary ingredients of what makes you you is salt and light because he is in you. And so it's like kind of that, that red shirt that gets put in the laundry with all the white clothes on accident and then what you end up with is a bunch of pink clothes at the end. This new creation life that God works in us, then as we just bump into people in our normal everyday spheres of influence, that begins to rub off. That begins to rub off in your neighborhood, like we talked about last week. It begins to rub off today in your workplace and in the other places that you find yourself, in your home, where you work out, and all of those things. So we're just going to think for a couple of minutes before coming to the table about what it means to be salt and light. Uh, so three points real quick. First, salty and bright work. Second, bland and dim work. And thirdly, how do you stay salty? Normally that's a bad thing. Okay, uh, so let's start here. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and consider, according to the Bible, what am I supposed to be about? What is my life supposed to be about? Right after God makes man and woman in Genesis 1, just right on the heels of that, he says these words, I want you to fill the earth with my glory, and I want you to, sub to subdue it. I want you to rule it and have dominion over it. I had a, a seminary professor who, if there was a whiteboard back here, I'd draw it, but he drew two circles, a big one and a little one. And he said, this is the world in its initial creation. The little circle is Eden. The big circle is the entire world that God has made that at that point was yet undeveloped. And we see going on to Genesis 2, which is kind of a retelling of the creation story from Genesis 1, that he gives all, God gives all the raw materials that we need. It's fun to sit around the dinner table and to point at stuff and go, that came from a farmer and that came from a farmer, and that actually came from our backyard. All of these raw materials that make up everything, even the metal chairs that you're sitting in right now, 
came from the ground, came from the an, an original creation. Plants, animals, rivers, trees, even uh, minerals, gold, delium, onyx are mentioned in Genesis 2. And so everything we have needed for technology, for innovation, for industry have been put in this ground that God has placed us on. And he has said, from the very beginning, the goal has been to take Eden and fill the world with this city and develop it and make it look more and more and more beautiful because as it does, so it will reflect the God who made it. Now, things got a little wonky in there. And so we're in the middle of a bigger story that, you know, work got a lot harder after sin came into the world. So you're not totally wrong in that work does have a difficult component to it. The words thorns and thistles in Genesis 3 are used to describe what work now becomes. Sweatiness, difficulty, those things are true. But that original creation mandate has not gone anywhere. And it is glorious to begin to live into the reality of that. Now, we can also tend to think that really the people who are working for God are the guys like Jeremy or the guys like Dave or maybe the elders or the, you know, the ones who are like, those guys are the ones like getting up and preaching and they pray and they do this thing. And like, those are the really spiritual guys. Martin Luther comes along and wants to debunk all of that. He goes on to say, the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ a whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the fields or the woman going about her household tasks. <coughs> Excuse me. All works are measured before God. <coughs> Excuse me. By faith alone. That quote gives me every time. Just kidding. <coughs> I just got a frog. Um, so what does that mean? That means that everybody in this room, man, woman, child, has an opportunity, whether you are on the, the retired end of that spectrum or you are on the student end of that spectrum just about to start your next school year. Wherever you are, God has given you something, <clears throat> excuse me, in your life, some amount of creation that he has given you to break off a piece of and shape it into something glorious. And so if you're a, <clears throat> if you're a CEO, that may be taking whatever good or service. <coughs> Thank you, Garrett. Uh, <clears throat> it's getting verklempt. Um, whatever good or service that may be that your, uh, that your place of business provides, what does it look like to think about that I'm shaping this into something for the good of the glory of God and the good of my fellow man? Uh, for the student, literally, as you go back to school, you are shaping your brain in a unique way to think about this world that God has made to be able to one day make your mark on that world in a unique way to you. For the moms and dads in this room, it is a worthy calling for you to raise your children. It is a worthy calling to stay home to do that, to place a special effort for a period of time on your children. <clears throat> oh, man, thanks, Garrett. Um, for... I forgot what my last one was. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you're on the more retired side of that, then there is plenty to do in the, in the volunteer range to love and raise grandchildren to uh, maybe there's a hobby that you take up for the sake of blessing others. There is no, no person in this room that cannot have a unique impact for God's glory in this world that he has made.
Michelangelo, the great sculptor, has been known to say that any piece of rock that he was about to chisel away, he said, I can see in that piece of rock a slumbering figure, and my job is to release him from his captivity in that rock. He was also known to say, I believe that I have been designated for this work by God. He was able to take something where literally he is taking creation and shaping something out of it. And he was able to say, I connect, I see how what I am doing is taking the raw material of this world and making something beautiful out of it. And as I do, that glorifies God and that helps people even today who go and stand in front of Michelangelo's David and just stand in awe. What is that for you? What is it that you spend a third of your lifetime and half of your waking hours every day doing? And can you say, have, have you made that connection? Do you believe that I am designated for this work by God? And it doesn't have to be some amazing work. It can be picking up the trash. It can be cleaning the sewer. It can be, I think I would want to do nothing less than be a plumber. But you can plumb for the glory of God. Just not me. Please, Lord. Um, okay, so then let, let's think for a minute about these two categories that Jesus talks in. He talks about, and the fun thing about a lot of the parables and the images that Jesus uses is they're simple enough that literally uh, your children are in the back right now learning about salt and light, and they're able, these are categories they can understand, but they're also deep enough that everyone in this room can think very, very deeply about what does this mean for me in my everyday life? First, I want you to notice the, the word, you are. He doesn't say you might be. He doesn't say you could be. He doesn't say if you work really hard, you will be. He says you are salt. You are light. It is built into you. Now, what you can do, if you notice what salt and light, as it goes away, what you can do is you can try to, to hide those things, you can try to just mix in with the crowd, but he's saying you already are these things. What you can do is obscure it. So what does it look like to live as salt? Salt is like the humblest of all the seasonings. Think about it. it if, if you put sage in your eggs, you're just going to think you're eating, you know, turkey and stuffing. Like sage equals Thanksgiving. It's just what it is. You could do the same thing with cilantro. You could do the same thing with rosemary. All of these flavors have very unique things about them that more obscure the dish in some ways than bring it out. Salt is the one thing. Now, you cooks in the room are probably going to get on to me. But at least as far as my limited knowledge and the sake of this illustration goes, uh, salt is the one thing that whatever is good about that dish Whatever's good about that meat, whatever's good about those potatoes, whatever's good about that watermelon, which my granddad did, and it always weirded me out. You put salt on it, and there's something about it that just brings out the goodness that's already there, sort of under the surface, and it brings out the goodness of that. And in, in that way, it kind of, it gets out of the way, and it enhances what's already good in the room. 
And so to apply that to your workplace, is your workplace markedly different and distinct because of your presence there? And it may be so small. It may be just an interaction with a coworker. This does not have to be grand and glorious. This is very in the down and dirty details of everyday life. But is there a sense at which you're considering as you walk into your workplace, I'm going to humbly think about what does it look like to enhance the beauty and the goodness that is already here, both in the hard work that I do and in the way that I love my coworkers in such a way that I am bringing out the best in this organization for the glory of God and to love my neighbor well. Secondly, you are light. You are light. Um, I was kind of thinking of the image of, I don't think this happens anymore, but the old movie projectors where you actually have the lamp and you have the reel and it's just literally a moving picture, you know, which is where the word movie came from. That whole idea that if you have no light, then no picture is going to be projected on the screen. Jesus does not leave us guessing about what he's saying in this. But he goes on to say, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works. And so he's very directly connecting the works that you do that show others that there is something different here. There's something different about you. There's something different about the the way that you carry yourself, about the way that you treat people, about the hard work that you do, about sometimes it's the extra hours that you put in. Sometimes it's the boundaries to say, I need to go home now. And there's something about that that is unique. And what that is doing is showing that you are living a different kind of life, a differently ordered life, one that the real that your life, what Jesus is saying is the real that your life should be showing is one of kingdom value, of kingdom orientation and reality, that I am a citizen of heaven. I am a citizen of another world that is coming into this world as heaven comes to earth, little by little, and one day fully in Christ. And I'm beginning to live my life now and shape my life now in ways that others would go, I see something different. And one of the easiest definitions that Paul gives that I think the whole Bible, we can get really kind of bent out of shape about telling other people about Jesus. One of the best definitions of evangelism that Paul gives is, as you live that kind of a life, folks are just gonna ask questions. And when they do, just be ready Be ready to have an answer for the hope they give you. There's something about just living a contrasting life, not only going with the flow of the broad culture, that begins to beg questions in people's lives. And as they do, then literally they are tasting and seeing the glory of God in you. In the very everyday, mundane day in and day out, punching the clock kinds of things that that we do, even that I do. I was considering it is possible to be an unsalty and dim pastor. I can do that in a way that is totally just self-motivated, that doesn't think about glorifying God and doing anything else for anybody. I'm just in it for myself. Anybody in any vocation can get there, but anybody in any vocation can live this out salt and light. So here's just one application in case study uh, as as we think about this. Working from home has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? So many, since I've moved here, I've noticed that there's no particular rush hour 
It just is like always rush hour on 440. And there is, there is something, I was talking to that with somebody, or some, talking about that with somebody, and they said, yeah, it's because everybody keeps all these weird hours because nobody like goes to work and punches the clock and then eight hours later goes home and it's like this nine to five thing anymore. Work is all over the place and it happens in all kinds of nooks and crannies in our lives. So here would be an application. Today, statistically, 38% of people uh, of the workforce is either at all times or at some times working from home. That's up from 24%. So that's, tw- uh, I'm bad at math, 14 more percent uh, since pre-COVID. That has changed drastically. And I'm sure many of you are both tasting and seeing the goodness of that. But also, this may be a question to ask. If I am, if I'm trying to be salt and light, if that's what Jesus is saying, I am, and he's sending me into my workplace, then how does, how do I think about working from home or going into the office? Or how do I think about if I am going to work from home, what does that look like in the way that I communicate and I continue to build relationship and community with my coworkers? Maybe I need to, to start a, a get-together once a week uh, where we go to a happy hour somewhere or we have lunch together on Fridays. Or maybe I do need to think about maybe going into the office more for the sake of actually being around my coworkers instead of just engaging them on Zoom or via text or on the phone. That's one of many applications. Uh, And all I'm trying to say there is not, you should go into the office more, but more so just ask the questions. Ask the questions, what is positioning me? What is the Lord doing in how he's positioned me in my particular workplace? And how do I use the rhythms of my life to enhance that for his glory? So that's salty and bright work. How about bland and dim work? Because if we're real, if I'm real about my normal everyday pastor life job, it is so easy to slip into, I'm just doing my thing and I got my head down and my nose to the grindstone and I'm just trying to get from one side of the day to the other without too much trouble. Is that so much to ask? Not only that, like we said earlier, work actually is harder now because you're also bumping up against other sinners all the time. You're, you're bumping up and having to deal with really complex issues and problems. That's part of what's so glorious about this creation mandate, but what's also so uh, difficult about it is that you're trying to answer really tough things that don't necessarily always have a black and white uh, response to them. And as you do, it, you may find yourself like Stanley from the office saying, I would rather work for an upturned broom with a bucket for a head than work for somebody else in this office besides myself. Or like Kevin, when he says, I'm pretty sure that everyone else that I work with is an idiot all the time. (laughs) It is easy for our salt to be contaminated. It is easy for our light to be hidden. And so Jesus goes directly at that. And he says, be careful because that is going to be your natural flow is to to kind of shrink back from that reality and to just live into myself, my world, my stuff. Um, For salt to lose taste sounds a little confusing, though, because we've got salt on our counter and it hasn't lost taste in all the years that it's been sitting on the counter. But in the first century context, 
this, that sodium chloride is sort of mixed together with all these other minerals and stuff. And it actually was possible for the sodium chloride, the saltiness, to actually just sort of leach out of that thing. And then all you're left with is just sort of this powdery dirt that sort of looks like salt. It is possible to look salty and not actually be salty. It is possible to just sort of go with the flow of life, where you're just so mixed in with the, the dominant culture, you're just sort of doing your job and going home, you're just like every other guy at the office, you're just like every other, every other lady in, um, you know, at the park or wherever you find yourself, that it's so easy again to just get our heads down. Secondly, our light can be hidden. And Jesus says the way that that can happen is a basket can be put over it. So if, if losing its saltiness kind of has this image of being assimilated too much, where you kind of lose any distinction from anybody else around you, to, to lose your light is more of a withdrawal thing. Like I become so withdrawn because you guys are crazy and I don't want to be a part of this. I'm just going to do my job and go home. Get away from me, you crazy people or wherever you find yourself sort of shrinking back from the difficult places in your workplace or those difficult relationships. Jesus is saying, you're withdrawing my light that I want to shine through you from other people. Um, so to think about the students in the room as you guys are about to go back to school, there is very much application out of this for you. Because when you go into your schools, I, I have kids in um, both middle school and elementary school, and I was a kid in middle school and elementary school. Please don't ever let me go back to middle school anyways. Uh, it is so easy though, right? It is so easy to go with the flow. It is so easy to blend in and just wear the things that everybody else is wearing and say the things that everybody else is saying to lose any kind of distinction that there may be between, because I just want to fit in, I just want to be liked, I just want to be included. Uh, when there's opportunities that you may look like a weirdo for showing compassion or showing grace to somebody, you're like, nope, that's going to get me a target on my back. For sure. That is very real and very possible, and I have both lived that uh, and continue to walk with my own children as they live that. But could Jesus be inviting you into a better, bigger story than that? Students, could he be inviting you into, you may be the only person in your classroom who knows Jesus. You may be the only person in your workplace who knows Jesus? Could he be so specifically and uniquely placing you there with such a specific desire that others would even see his kingdom come through you? And the applications are endless to this. And I think one of the reasons that we really hold back from this idea of like going in with um, with too much with our workplaces and at our schools and wherever else you find yourself is we just we have this idea you know you've seen many news stories over the past couple of years about the rise of the nuns not like the hats but like the you know the rise of the nuns like the religious nuns like the ones who um or the I'm sorry the unreligiously affiliated Statistics have been flying around like the end of the church is near. The culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh no, we're losing our grip on society. What is happening? 
And in the wake of news stories like that, what we can begin to think is, I mean, that is a place to shrink back. That's scary. That's bad news. I can't engage with that because that problem's too big. Uh, there's a really helpful book that I'm in the middle of reading right now uh, by a guy named Rick Richardson. He's the director of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Center at Wheaton College. And he's done some, uh, he's a statistician as well as he's been a pastor and a professor. And he says this, he's done the statistical research and he says, based on our findings, 79% of people do not mind if their Christian friends talk about their faith. That's four out of five people that you interact with don't mind if you express some of your own views about your faith. He goes on to say 51% of people would actually respond favorably to an invite to a church function from a friend of theirs. 79% of people, four out of five people don't mind if you talk about your faith. And one out of two would actually come to something with you if they trust you, uh, and if what you're inviting them to doesn't sound super weird. So we're trying to do some things around here as a body to help give you some things that you might uh, even invite your friends to this fall. The first is statistically still inviting people to church is still the top thing that most people will respond well to an invitation to uh, a Sunday morning gathering. Secondly, uh, we continue to have young professionals, men's and women's ministry uh, type of things, and those things will go into the fall. Those can be very easy invites for your particular age and stage and demographic and needs. And then two unique things for the sake of this year. One, we hope to do a family movie night. We recognize that the Lord has placed us in, uh, in and around this particular neighborhood in Creve Hall, and that a lot of those people that he has placed us with are families with young children. And so we don't want to exclusively focus there, but we do want to place some emphasis and some energy there, seeing who is in our neighborhood and how we can bless them. So two things that we're going to try this fall and see how they go uh, is one, a family movie night. And, uh, and so details of that are still forthcoming, but the goal would be either in here or out on the lawn somewhere. We would do like a Friday night movie night, have some popcorn. Uh, and the goal would be that that would just be an easy invitation from maybe, you know, your next door neighbor or someone who you go to school with or whatever to say, hey, my, you know, my family's going to this movie night thing. Would you want to come? And there's not like a thing at the end where I'm going to surprise, you know, and throw Bibles at people. <laughs> Boo! But it's, it's really just a chance to bless this community. Uh, and then lastly, um, we do think that there is real resource that the Christian community has to offer the broader population. Uh, and so we would love to do a parenting conference kind of in tandem with one of the local counseling ministries and offer that to the school, maybe even host it here in this room as another opportunity. One, shoot, we need the help. Uh, but secondly, so do your next door neighbors. So do the other parents who are sending their kids in uh, these doors and many other schools around the city tomorrow. So those are just a couple of ideas of what it could look like as you build relationship. Notice in those in those stats, the goal is relationship. And in that relationship, real trust can form. And out of real trust, real conversation about things that really matter um, can form as well. So that's the goal. Now, to close this up and to come to the table, what, what is very easy to do in a sermon like this is to go, okay, so I'm going to go back out and I'm going to go to my workplace and I'm going to go to school tomorrow and I'm going to be salty. And I'm going to get lit. 
Let me change my phrasing. You, we are very tempted to just take that and go, all right, so I'm going to white knuckle this thing and I'm going to do a great job. And Jesus says, oh, whoa, 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 wait, remember, this is something you are. Even more than something you do, this is something that you are. And like so many times in scripture, God always puts the you are first. And then he says, now I want you to grow up. Now I want you to more and more and more live into that reality because that's who you are and who I've made you to be. And more and more, as I live inside you by my spirit, I'm growing you up and taking all those sharp edges off and making you look more and more like me. Because Jesus is the creator of everything who formed you out of the dust. There is no one who is more creative at taking chunks of, chunks of creation and making something beautiful than our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the salt of the earth. Every room that he was in, people marveled. How can he do this? He has such authority. He has such power. He has such wisdom. He has such panache and knowledge to manage all of these people just bombarding him all the time. He's amazing. And Jesus literally says, I am the light of the world. Everything he does in his entire life has a constant eye to, I am just doing what my father tells me to do. I'm just trying to follow hard after him. And yet, as the one who should have been rewarded for every one of those things, instead, what we find at the end of Jesus' life is that he was trampled under the feet of men, like salt that had no worth. He was snuffed out like a candle that had put a basket over it. The light of the world was snuffed out. Why? Because what our unsaltiness, what our life that normally just looks a whole lot like everybody else around us, that is a life that God has called us to and then said, no, you, you've fallen really short of that standard. But Jesus has stepped into that gap and said, I will live that standard for them. I will be the salt in them. I will be the light flowing through them. I will forgive all of their sin and need. And I will fulfill them and settle their hearts and call them to a greater reality than they could be a part of if they just tried to make it up on their own. And so as the Spirit works inside of us, he then, the Spirit of Jesus, lives as salt and as light. And what we're about to do at this table is to feed on him. That spiritually we are, as we take these elements of bread and wine, we are both remembering and spiritually feeding and taking nourishment in the fact that he loves me. He has died for me. And because that's true, how would I order my days? Annie Dillard says, how we order our days is how we order our lives. And so what we're going to do is come up to these kneelers uh, in just a moment and have an opportunity to take communion together. And as we do, uh, I would encourage you to ask this question. First, do I know him? Have I come to this point where I am in need? There is a gap I see in my life from what I want it to be and where I currently am, and the only way that I can get from here to there is Jesus. And then secondly, am I living connected to other people? You can consider this like one giant table that we're all coming around today, and there's a communal sense of what we're doing. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And so if those things are true and real in your life and beginning to work themselves out 
in your everyday lives outside of these walls, then I invite you to come. I invite you to come and feed on Jesus to both know deeply that he has died for you and know deeply that he now sends you into every sphere of influence that you find yourself. So what we're going to do as the band comes back up uh, is we're going to come forward and you can kind of come at your own speed to the kneelers. Um, you can kind of come down the center aisles as much as you can and then come back around the back because some lines will start to form. And as you come up here, this is an opportunity, maybe this is the only time you've stopped this week and, and really thought about Jesus and thought about where am I at? Where am I at and how I spend my time? Am I, am I living it with the intentionality that Jesus would call me to? And it may be an opportunity to repent and it may be an opportunity to just rest in his love for you. Uh, and then as you do, if you need prayer, you can cross your arms. If you need somebody else to just saddle up next to you uh, and speak words of truth to you. Uh, and then when you're ready to take uh, both the bread and the wine, you can open uh, your hands. There will be a gluten-free option. I'm not sure where that will be, but uh, you are smart people and you can find that. Um, and so when you come, uh, you can open your hands when you're ready and then the servers will serve you. And you can take a minute and head back to your seats, okay? So the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, and when he had broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And as he poured that cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As many as come to this table, do this in remembrance of me. So we now taste and see that he's good as I pray. So, Father, we pray uh, that you would use this time to capture back your people's hearts or maybe capture hearts for the first time. Use this meal for the sake of your glory. We pray in Christ.